But this is good coffee. Good. Yeah. So, uh, how are you? Doing pretty well. Got a nice long break in between semesters at Oberlin, and that's a very revitalizing thing after uh, pushing very hard for a couple months. Were you pushing hard, like, in two directions? Like, were you composing and teaching, and that yeah. was the push, or mm-hmm. was it... Composing and teaching and traveling back and forth to New York for shows and rehearsals. Uh, December in particular, it was, you know, traveling to Duke for three days... Um, during one of the last weeks of class, then to New York for a big concert. Then that concert was followed immediately by two days in the recording studio, then back to Oberlin to teach my last like three classes and Jesus. make up lessons. And so it just really smushing everything in. I think a lot of like high level schools are kind of like that. They expect you just to be going, going, going all the time when you're in session. And then like you get these long breaks where you can just. By going, 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 you mean going, 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 not at the school and doing other things to... No, for the students, too. Just, like, running huge sleep deficits, working as hard as you can, like, never really getting to relax fully. Just super intense the whole time. It's on-off, basically. So when you're in school, you're on all the way, and then you get these long breaks where you get to just, like, totally relax, unwind. Do you ever think you'll find an equilibrium I hope you know so. I mean, I, mean yeah. I, I am more and more psyched about the idea of taking breaks these days, about not being on all the time. Whereas I used to feel lazy if I wasn't working literally every day. What do you mean by, by working? Do you mean teaching or do, uh, do you, like you composing? Know, composing, like doing work for wet ink, uh, pounding the pavement, just what, whatever it was, it's especially composing. But, um, you know, it's like, what is the project? I have to be doing something right now. If I'm not, then yeah, I'm sort of, I'm not doing my job. Or something like that. But I I feel more and more that like I need time for things to incubate, uh, things develop over long periods of time. If I go from one thing to the next, it's not necessarily going to be very thoughtful. Or, you know, there's not a lot of chance for something really new to reveal itself if it's just, okay, what's next? Okay, what's next? Okay, what's next? So you're incubating right now, I'm assuming. Uh Uh-huh. What's about to hatch? It, there's there's sort of two different arcs. So one arc is kind of completing, and then there's there's some new stuff coming. The thing that I have to finish next is a big solo prepared piano piece for Eric Hubner, who's pianist for the New York Phil, but has been you know in a lot of groups and teaches at Buffalo now. But that's a piece that I started when I was at McDowell Colony last fall, when I had a, a piano to myself, just you know all day every day that I could really plant for the first time in a long time if, since I lived at home really. I just haven't had that kind of access to a good instrument to really like get invested and in, try things out. How did you keep your chops up? Uh, I mean, I played on a weighted 88-key keyboard um, when I lived in New York where I would get practice sort of catch-as-catch-can at Columbia. But I, I never practiced that much. It was always really ad hoc. It was like, do I have a concert coming up? Okay, practice. But unless it was like a, a truly challenging solo piece... I would never put in a huge amount of practice time. Uh, the Oblinger pieces, what the hell did you do for that? That I put in a huge amount of time. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, they just require it. I mean, it's 
I like music like that, but it's it's also, you know, I just played this piece by Sam Pluta, and I feel like those are the sorts of pieces that people have started to write for me in response to that. Pieces in which every mistake is immediately audible. <laughs> it's just like there is there's there's no way that you could not know when you miss a note because everything is in unison with something else. That is, uh, it's so refreshing to hear something scrutable, though, isn't it? Like, I mean, that's I'm, that's per, sort of my per, shit. Yeah, or that, what I'm saying is, like, personally speaking, like going to Darmstadt yeah, and like and, and and hearing completely inscrutable, kind of like the mastery of faking your way through something, and almost felt like, and then to hear something that's like, oh, you fucked up right there because yeah. of that millisecond. Okay, right. that's stressful for you, but it's amazing for everybody else. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and um, I had a very strong experience of that this fall at Einstein on the Beach, where that is the case for the entirety of that piece. And you don't notice it except for like the once every hour of the four hour piece where you hear something go off the rails for a second. And it's like, ooh, you sort of cringe. But then like five seconds later, you realize, oh, wait, <laughs> yeah, that's the only time I heard them mess up this hour. So everything else, even if it doesn't sound outrageously difficult, is just an absolutely heroic feat of con- of concentration and physical endurance. It's really amazing. And it's almost like if something you know, if something is technically scrutable, then it almost kind of widens the way that you can... Ha- like. I, then I feel like I can finally have an opinion about it, if I like it or not. You know what I mean? Of course, because, yeah. I mean, it's the same thing. Um, I'm going through the some of these books from some of the Darmstadt folks these days. I don't know if you know this series, like the Mannkopf... Yeah, polyphony yeah. and complexity and musical morphology. I don't know. All, all these like, articles. those are everywhere, and like um, every music festival you go to, you know, they yeah. have like the nerdy like composer stand, exactly. and those are always those are always there. So I have a complicated relationship with that scene. Like I, I don't know. I, I came out of being really interested in some of that stuff, but there's been aspects of it that I've always found extremely distasteful. And um, so I, I guess periodically I like check in. Well, I mean, with, that's what I do with any scene that I feel like. I I have some problem with it, or it's somehow like it, it's not what I would naturally gravitate towards, but it it remains there, and like I keep hearing about it, or like new people come along, so I want to keep checking it out. Like I'm interested in just okay, what is this really like? Is my perception of it accurate? Um, so I came back to those books relatively recently, and man, you know, some of it must be because it's being translated, but the it's almost virtuosic, the the ability to pile up page after page of discourse that has really just almost no content in it whatsoever. I mean, it's a, it's a sort of rhetorical dodge, just torrents of, of language that are so obscure. And obscure not in the sense of just like using words that don't make sense. or It's, it's sort of these grammatical constructions that just don't cohere. And you cannot, you sit there with, it, with a sentence for five minutes and you cannot work out what it's supposed to mean. Yeah. It just doesn't work. And I, I feel like actually that's, you know, there's a history of, of that in certain kinds of philosophy as actually a strategy. Um, you know, and I don't know a lot about that, but I've talked about that with various people, you know, folks like Derrida and Deleuze. You know, there's some strategy there of sort of talking around things. Um, but it, in the case of um, some of these books, and, and I think the broader point, you know, to tie back to that music is there is a, there's such a terror of saying something clear that someone else could actually mm-hmm. understand and then pin you down and say, okay, so you said this. So here's my argument against that. If you can never be pinned down as to what your argument actually is, then you never have to face that, that sort of criticism or, or even begin a conversation like that. And so this, um, this kind of mumbling 
that musical style to me always resembles is I don't know. I just, <laughs> I find it hard. Um, I mean, I'm not going to go so far as to, as to, uh, accuse it of, you know, moral failing or something, but it, it just, it seems weak to moral me. Moral failing is a little bit of a strong word, but I do know I what mean, you mean you know, by cowardice that. would be, would be the word that would come to mind, but I, I, I don't think that's right. Cowardice is also very strong. <laughs> no, I know. But, and, and again, I don't want to say either of those things because, um, I, I retain a kind of fascination as, as with certain aspects of that especially i just feel like i have my own answers to the the same questions that they have but i respect the questions um i just find their answers to be like so bizarre what do you think they're afraid of by dodging or what are what are they avoiding you're saying they're avoiding getting pinned down because they can't because they're afraid to lose an argument i think that's okay so again this idea of you say something that's very clear and direct and understandable then someone can uh, argue against it, possibly prove you wrong. That scene, as far as I see it, traffics in uh, one of the few, and I actually almost admire them for this, that they see themselves as kind of high modernists or new modernists. So they believe in, uh, at least in some ways or in some situations, the idea of aesthetic absolutes. And that's my understanding. I, I could be just totally wrong about no, that. No, no, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Um, so that that to me is actually, again, kind of a brave thing to say these days, where the, the prevailing trend, especially over here, is just um, you, you really can't say that anything's better than anything else. You know, any stylistic decision, any aesthetic decision, um, and that, that has extended to the point of saying you can't really make qualitative statements about other people's music. Like, everything is apples and oranges. You just, I mean, who's better than someone else? It's, it's like people, people really resist making those kinds of judgments. Yeah, I, I think I always kind of play the apples and oranges game, but I always relate it to economics somehow. Like, where's the money coming from and yeah, what are they expecting sure. for you? And then you can relate it to that. And okay, so then, I mean, let's try and make this a little bit more concrete. Like, so I'll look at something that does very well in a marketplace and then I'll look at something that's meant for subsidized culture that sure. is not going to make money. And then I can say, okay, that's apples and oranges. Two different sources of revenue, each source of revenue uh, has a requirement and a want from whatever the source is, and it's fulfilling in a certain way. So you can't make the you cannot make a qualitative judgment compared to another revenue source. I think that's fair to do, but uh, mm -hmm. like this other type of kind of apples and oranges, I kind of understand what you mean. I think it's bound up with history above all, and history is for European folks. Again, a lot of what I'm saying here might just sound like idiotically oversimplified but here we go um this for, is what this is about yeah. <laughs> okay <laughs> for for the the european uh you know new music crowd um maybe let's even add avant-garde to that whatever that means there's this very sort of problematized engagement with history i actually feel it's tremendously freeing not to wake up every morning and feel like you're like composing underneath this uh just cripplingly intimidating array of historical figures, you know, Beethoven and Bach looking down on you and scowling and making you feel small and uh, worthless. At the same time, I, I feel none of that or very little of that coming is sort of on people's minds in, in some um, communities in the United States. So we have the advantage of being free of that. We can choose to, to feel like, you know, we're in the frontier. There is no past. It's just the future. You know, whatever we do is, it comes from this current place and it's so it's right. But at the same time, that, that really does have a big pitfall to it, which is you can think you're doing something that's really awesome when, in fact, it's really just something you've heard before and are kind of subconsciously parroting. And 
you know, someone told you it was great, but then they're, they also don't really know about it either. Uh, I, I just think it's, it's kind of a tricky situation and, and it's better in general to sort of split the difference between those two paths in my opinion. So to, in a certain way, I mean, you can just be aware of something and avoid that trap. You can just be super educated and on top of what's going on and not, not participate in it as much. And you can avoid that trap. Yeah. But uh, you know, I, I guess I don't want to suggest the other thing too, which is like total information awareness is the key to avoiding that. Like you have to know everything and um, you know, avoid, uh, you, know, you know, get your references right and have listened to everything and have read everything. Cause I don't really mean that either. I basically mean like to just be open and curious all the time, to be listening to a lot of things, to be checking things out, not to get caught up in your little world and just be sort of surrounded only by your friends and the people who tell you that you're great and get into this kind of self-congratulatory echo chamber, but um, to just, you know, remain ambitious in the sense of challenging yourself. So if it's easy for you to do, great. It's probably time to move on and, you know, come up with some some new way of challenging yourself and of stretching yourself. And so, you know, I think there are people who would uh, look at the current historical situation, like the, the high modernist crowd, maybe, let's say, and say, um, you know, th- this whole very problematic idea of uh, beauty. This is something I've been talking a lot with friends about recently. You know, so harmony is the root of all these issues, of all these kind of psychological knots that people tie themselves into as composers in the 20th century. It's just this question of harmony and like the referentiality of certain intervals and how oh, do we okay, get past yeah, that, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. What is a major third? How could you possibly write a major third? Because right? mm-hmm. there's all this history around it. But what someone like Feldman teaches you is that a major third is not a major third. It's just so dependent on register, on orchestration, on dynamics, on all of these other parameters. So you just have to think more broadly than that. And so there's not, in my mind, there's not anything that's off limits. You just have to interrogate all of those parameters and think about things just from a different perspective. So if you're trying to engage with history, if you're trying to engage with tradition, if you're trying to engage with beauty, don't take something that's sort of a ready-made conception from you know someone else's uh, time or style or whatever else and just kind of plop it down wholesale into your music but just think about it for a minute like, yeah but that takes a lot of work doesn't it but i i, I mean when any time people say something like that about composers it's just like you have such an easy job in so many ways what do you I mean what, think about how mean? good your job is as a composer i mean it's it's so fulfilling true it's so much just yeah. about fulfilling kind of egotistical things about yourself you know when it's when it's great it's it's so fulfilling to yourself as an ego and then if you want to make it broader than that like say oh but i'm i'm like touching people i'm reaching out that's even more egotistical but there, yeah but there's also other kind of social constructs that okay th- that's true but at the same time we are in a scene and we do want to fit in don't we i mean i'm talking about an innate human need to do that and if you look at it from that perspective i can almost understand why these people take these kind of ready-made constructs you were talking about and just plop it into their own music because then they belong to something and then they have other people sure. that belong to them and they can you know they can talk to each other and pretend that they're right and the other people are then the other people aren't hip to whatever they're hip to and everything like that that's actually totally fine with me because you're right i mean that is like at the end of the day we're all just humans trying to be happy and so that's a natural human thing my problem then would become with the the critical apparatus that fails to separate what's quality from what's just people trying to be in a scene because some things are better than other things. Now by critical apparatus, you mean, I mean like critics. New York times. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, just, yeah. I mean, it's, there is very little of it to begin with, but what little of it there is is actually quite influential. And, you know, let's not kid ourselves in the grand scheme of things. There's a lot of money floating around that has a lot to do with how things are perceived in the press and otherwise. And I think 
by and large, um, maybe it's improving a bit, but uh, for many years, I, I really had the feeling that no one was trying very hard, I mean, critically, and that, uh, you know, compositionally as well, that people were making basically mediocre art and being told it was great. And so they were like, oh, I guess this is great. So I guess I don't need to try any harder. Why did that happen? Okay, we talked about this the day that I got sick. We were originally supposed to do it, and we touched upon it for a little bit. And it was like, and I was, okay, I was just mulling on it for a while. And I'm like, I'm just wondering why exactly what happened in like media in general that caused that to happen. Okay, (laughs) let me let me lay it out. I mean, for you in in my sort of grand paranoid scheme, which will actually sound very much more uncharitable to a lot of people than I than I intended. Is this a disclaimer? In a way, I mean, you know, so in a way, I'm kind of quoting my former, my old, my younger self okay. when I say this because I'm I'm significantly less angry or emotional or whatever about these issues than I used to be. You come to like a, a Zen type of acceptance well, that it, comes with not age. Even, not even that. Just a, I have my own strategies, and things change over time too. But the way I see it, there was a particular cultural moment that was the intersection of a couple things. There was first of all this. In journalism in general, in our culture, there was a move away from the concept of any idea of objectivity or authority and hearing in any source whatsoever. There's just no truth anymore, right? It's everyone's opinion. Mm-hmm. And you, Everything's an opinion show, yeah. we're, we're, you know. But, but really down to, the, down to the facts, right? So we can't even agree on the facts about anything anymore, about the oil spill in, in the Gulf or, you know, just you name it. There is, you spin it this way or that, someone says this, they assert it often enough, that becomes this sort of competing fact. The idea of just truth in general has been, I think, really undermined. And that's, obviously, there's something uh, maybe good about that. You could see a silver lining in that, too, um, coming out of a critical discourse as well, which is that um, it's probably good to interrogate things that have been held as monolithic truths in a culture for centuries but there's a limit to that of course and so it becomes very frustrating when you know you're sitting down at a table with someone and you hold up an apple and you say apple and they say no orange and you you recognize that you're not having like a deep uh discussion about um you know some philosophical uh, about language or about ontology actually you're just being like nor, nor will any kind of systemic problem that's happening with that particular piece of fruit be able to be solved through a consensus of two people Right. So these things end up being basically futile and frustrating and just a kind of form for playing out petty personal and political uh, feuds. So that that, uh, I think is is one part of it. And then part two, which sort of collides with that, is this moment in which everyone is suddenly freaking out about the death of classical music, which I would place as, let's say that's, you know, somewhere around 2000 to 2010. Maybe, Maybe we're sort of out of it now, maybe not. But there was this moment where it was just that was all anyone wanted to talk about, especially among music administrators. So everyone is looking for the thing that's going to save classical music. So what is going to save classical music? Well, apparently the thing that's going to save classical music is whatever brings people into the concert hall. So it's what is, what is music that people actually want to hear? And so it becomes all of these ways of um, you know, getting people into seats. Uh, you know, who is the most marketable looking person that is going to sell the most tickets, you know, just a a variety of strategies that I think administrators at the time took the, maybe the global thing that they had in common in general was this, this sort of yearning for some of the, the cachet of that, whatever their conception of popular music. Can you blame them though? I mean, they're just trying to find a business model to make something sustainable. I don't think they're doing a good job of it. Well, right? they're not thinking out of the box. They're using and they're using other business models that they find work, and then they're doing kind of a square pig round hole thing. 
So you bring up the right word, though, which is sustainable. Because for me, it seems like a quick fix rather than uh, and trying to address the issue of sustainability. So they, they don't want classical music to die. Okay, cool. I appreciate that. But you don't do that by continuing to offer subscriptions to the New York Philharmonic, but just instead of having it be the New York Philharmonic, now you have like Andrea Bocelli singing on opening night and like someone's going to do something with a dude from Wilco or, you know, I'm mixing my metaphors here, but you know, yeah. that, that sort of thing. Like that's not a systemic overhaul with, a, with an eye to sustainability. That's a Band-Aid and it's not working. Like these, these institutions are, are failing and continue to fail. You know, not all of them. And there are people who have a vision to, to try to, to fix things like this. But I think that's actually what it really takes or is going to take. Uh, it's not going to be about, oh, we found some kid. He's got a cool haircut. Um, he writes music that people can listen to once. And, you know, they're going to think it's you know, more interesting than Haydn or more relevant to their lives than Haydn. So um, there we go. We saved classical music. I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's going to work. So what is your, I think you've done very, uh, yes, you've identified the problem. I essentially more or less agree with that. We're both looking at an apple. Okay. I'm not saying, I'm not calling it an orange, but uh, I try also and think about this, what a possible solution could be. I can't come up with anything. Um, And I'm talking about sustainable Mm -hmm. model in a system Mm -hmm. that is never going to gravitate towards a more subsidized art culture we're never going to get there and even the people who are there i don't think is going to last forever so what do you do well you have to do something you can't let the ship slowly sink well yes and no i mean the so there are various aspects to it right which is uh you look at the thing as a whole so you look at the tradition of just those instruments that performance practice that training those concert halls the institution of the orchestra of the opera you know the opera house all of that stuff together and some of it has to go together and some of it doesn't and so there are things that maybe are sustainable and maybe aren't and you know again i I don't want to like get into some discussion about what what deserves to survive or what doesn't but some things are just such huge institutions so orchestras are just such huge institutions. Thank you. And so when you have you know, an orchestra union in the United States, as it is, it, it takes a certain amount of money. It takes a certain amount of money to, to pay the union stagehands, to you know, work in a union hall. All of those things just take tremendous resources. But is that what classical music is? Is that what classical music is in the 21st century? Or is classical music a history and a tradition and a performance practice and a body of uh, work and, and an attitude, a, a way of making music. And is that something that we can continue and sustain and actually have it be extremely vital and new and contemporary and of this time and of this place? Uh, and if so, how does that intersect with those institutions? How does that intersect with opera houses, with the Met? How does that intersect with the New York Phil? How does that intersect with these various things? For some people, maybe greatly. For others, maybe not at all or, or very little. Uh, I think for a lot of the, the music that I'm most excited about um, these days or that I see around me and find inspiring, it really is people who, who engage very strongly with those traditions in, in a thoughtful way, you know, lots of different traditions, um, but they, they come up with their own answers to things. You know, again, the, the thing that I think America has to just its greatest advantage in the classical music world is the DIY tradition. So people just not sitting around waiting for something to fall into their laps, you know, waiting for the next big commission to come along. Otherwise, they're sort of not doing anything. They're just like 
drinking coffee at four in the afternoon, reading the paper on a cobblestone street in Belgium or something. But like, describe my life. <laughs> not Damn, that there's anything wrong with that? That's actually <laughs> kind of nice. No, I'm not in Belgium, and yeah. I do. I'm a little. I'm a little bit more DIY than that. I think. But I mean, you know what I mean. The, yeah. the, just the the idea that like, if we care about these things, I mean, we should just be we should be living them. We should be creating these things ourselves. We should be adapting them to our present circumstances because that is the thing that will make it sustainable. How do you convince a patronage to be like, yeah? Well, I mean, honestly, it's okay. So now, now if we talk about like wet ink as the the, uh, Let's use this as a month because I'm just you were just describing all those things, yeah. and of course this fits into the you know ensemble that you're in. So let's talk about how wet ink does this for a, yeah. a little well, bit. Well, I mean, you know, the the first years that I was involved with wet ink, we operated on no money at all. It just didn't take any money. I mean, our budget the first year that I was involved, I think, was five thousand dollars for the year, if that. And we did all these shows at the Bowery Poetry Club, which we had. We just made an agreement with them to like do it for free and then they would get the money from the bar. We paid people as much as we could and those of us who were, you know, involved in the group from an organizational perspective did it for no money because it was often our music being played or we would put in what money we had. I mean, those of us who were in school were like had enough money to survive, so we would pony up 200 bucks, you know, to have uh, a piece played in a certain situation and it just didn't need that much. And so there's this there's this idea of like Classical music needs this amount of money, or it needs this institution, or it needs a, a hall with a five-second reverb. I mean, I guess I feel more like, what do you have to work with? What do you have in front of you? Who do you have around? And what if you just worked with that? I actually read a great uh, interview with Brian Fernihill, of all people, a couple of years ago that said really that. He was like, I, you know, I think we're moving back to this, um, this kind of medieval era, almost, of music making, like the troubadour era in which people are just getting together with these weird little bands of like unusual instruments and going around from town to town. And, you know, who do you have? And I mean, that's how you're able to make interesting shit is like, it needs time. It needs to be based on something really personal. Um, it needs to grow out of a specific place. But that's only going to remain at a certain level. Well, what do you mean by that? Are you okay at staying at that level of just finding what you have and then just doing what you can do? Or it, well, what is the or, next or is level? The, Having like it scoring being a, a Mercedes Benz commercial? No, 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 no. <laughs> Something it's like a full time job for the people involved, like any of the new music ensembles that are like the premier ensemble of whatever city they're in. So, Clangform Veen yeah. or uh, Ensemble Modern. For me personally, I think that's the next level of ensemble development. And of mm-hmm. course, it's great that you start out totally do it yourself. I think that's the most organic way to do it. I think it's the less, it's the least sleazy way to do it. But at some point, don't you want that to be the thing you do and not have to worry about ponying up money or yeah, or you do yeah. So, well, um, I mean, again, it's all sort of talk from my personal experience. I guess I, I don't mean to say though that the model of like the European state-sponsored ensemble is the model that I would most wish. And, and in a way, I think it's, maybe it's just my, my American, I feel like we're so imprinted by these things, but like the idea of competition is actually like a, one that I really like in a way. Like I really do feel like people get complacent if they don't have competition stimulating them. Yeah. And, and it's the same with ensembles. You know, it's like if you know for the next 20 years you're going to get a paycheck, uh, you know, the, the state of Belgium is going, I always use Belgium as an example because... I have this image of Belgians as being really complacent, like 
sort of slightly chubby people, but that's, that's slightly chubby people. Yeah, in general, okay. I'd say a little chubby. Okay, so all right, so not Stefan Prince. He's a good guy, yeah. but uh, you don't want to deal with like fat Belgians, yeah. Yeah, you know. Um, so on the other hand, I guess I feel like the issue of uh, you know really having to to continue to fight for your place in a given community to fight for uh, any funding that's coming from a public source is on some level healthy. There's pitfalls to it too. Uh, so the, the trajectory it's taken with wet ink is that we've sort of little by little accumulated reliable sources of uh, public funding. So grants that we tend to get year in, year out, and we've been able to build the scale of what we do little by little based on that. Um, we still don't do the private donations thing very strongly or nearly as much as we should just because we're always embarrassed to ask people directly for money. It's horrible. In that way, it's a terrible thing and it's, it feels dirty, but I guess you have to do it. Um, I'm great. Don't you think I'm great? Get me money because I'm so great. That's basically what it is, right? Of course. Yeah. And I can't, I can't do that. Well, but yeah. And, and it's also, it's either you're asking your friends for it and that's weird yeah like start next like money. that you like send to like your parents yeah yeah or, 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 or i mean it's like us one of those startup like website <laughs> crowdfunding things sorry yeah start next well, is the german version yeah which uh, i've done yeah and then the other option is hitting up total strangers people you, you really don't have any personal connection to and, and asking them for funding and that's it's just a weird thing but anyway what ink doesn't do that as much no i mean again like a little bit more and more i think we'll have to because the the things that we're doing uh, these days are, you know, we're getting more and more ambitious with them, more and more moving towards this idea, at, at least in the direction of what you were talking about, where um, you'd like to stop doing things you don't want to do and only really focus on the things that you that you care the most about, uh, and kind of you know devote your life to to those things. So if you can just be thinking about the two or three projects that are most important to you all day, every day, then that's a that's a nice life. And again, for me, it doesn't have to be just one thing. Though that's that's the most difficult thing I think to sustain for for any working musician is like you have the one thing that is full time and that's the only thing that you do and then you have to sustain that year in year out and if that's not an academic appointment then it's this crazy beast that you have to feed every yeah. year so I mean imagine that you're running an ensemble that's like a full time ensemble and you have ten members and each of them are getting a salary and you just know next year you're going to have to raise at least five hundred grand I, it's it's not something that I have any talent for and i really really hate doing it so maybe i shouldn't be doing the job that i'm doing but i don't know we've always gotten by being a pretty scrappy at that sort of stuff but in my mind you you guys just like got bumped up to the next level these this past year and a half or something like the uh, sounds like i'm plugging you right now shit I, okay i'm not plugging you i'm just saying you can talk yeah, about how terrible it all is yeah happening. yeah i don't know like a bunch of like you you have two cds out now and carrier records and everything like that which i associate with you guys for some mm -hmm. reason you're somehow making it happen because that's a big that it was a it was a big jump from where i'm mm -hmm. standing sure which is on facebook in germany i guess <laughs> but uh you know what i mean yeah yeah sure yeah. well i mean i guess that's sort of how it happens in a way, I mean, the, with Katarina's CD, it's so much a function of just getting it on the label that it's on, on Hat Hut or whatever yeah. imprint of Hat Hut. You know, it, that's the situation of CDs today, basically, is like, no one's really going to invest money in your CD. You sort of have to pay to play. So you write a grant, get the grant. If they're willing to put out your CD just on the merits of the music, then they say, great, we're willing to do it. This is how much it will cost. 
How long have you guys been going at it, Wet Ink? You've been cracking away at it for... Uh, this is season 14. Damn. So it takes about, it takes a good 14 years to... Well, that depends. Crack I mean, a nut in a way, in a legitimate way. I mean, and also, like, I, I'd be pretty reluctant to say that we've cracked it or that, like, you know, people are... You know, really, just coming to us all the time, and you know, want, want what we've got or whatever. I mean, it it's it's so difficult to sustain that and to sustain an audience. And you know, we just put out this new album um, of sort of these pieces that uh, the composers in the group have written for the group. A piece by George Lewis, a piece by Rick Burkhart, um, stuff that we feel really really strongly about, and recorded under the best circumstances. And it came out in November, and like, it just hasn't been reviewed. You know, people have talked about it a little bit. Um, that was my next been question. Yeah, attention to it, but again, it, you know. And I sort of know how that works, which is like, you want to get something reviewed? Here's how you do it. You hire a publicist. And that publicist has to be one of the few publicists who can like, who is in touch with the people who review contemporary classical music CDs. They get the word out. Uh, it's just a, it's a whole weird system. And it, by and large, uh, I think we've sort of chosen to just kind of stay outside of that system and let things take longer, but sort of do them in our own way. So we just sort of do it by word of mouth. And you're never going to make money off of a CD these days anyway, so we just send them to as many people as we know. We know a ton of people uh, all over the world. So we just send the things out like business cards and say, hey, you know, could you do me a personal favor and set aside 40 minutes of your life just to listen to this CD and tell me what you think? But now that you're at the level where you have a, and pardon me for saying this, product, you have a high-quality product of something you really believe in and you're doing it the way you want to do it. Mm -hmm. Why not hire a publicist now? Because the publicist isn't going to be, actually, why don't you try these composers? The publicist is not going to, it's too late for a publicist to try and mold you into something that the press will like. So why not give it to uh, the publicist and see just see what they can do with it out of the off chance that something might pop and all of a sudden people are exposed to this thing that happened organically and not through kind of the cycle that you were complaining about. I do complain a lot. No, I mean, we talked about it. We did. And in the end, I think we just decided it was like, it was just so much money. And we're so skeptical of the whole transaction anyway. It's just another one of those things that feels dirty. It's like, we're sort of idealistic about it. It shouldn't have to be that way. So like, I mean, everyone's in touch with all the critics through social media and email anyway. So you just send it to people. And you know if it still is the case that there's a firewall up that only a publicist can breach uh, when it comes to something like that, okay, fine. But you know, we gave it a shot. Um, I, I think the, the attitude that we've ended up taking over the years is like, we're just going to wait it out. Again, if you believe enough in what you do, you certainly get respect from people over time by not compromising your values. And you know, people, people see how people operate in the community. It really is true. And so let's say someone gets really successful really quickly. That doesn't mean it's going to last, right? I've seen people come and go in the space of five years here. Yeah, that's, um, that, that seems about the right cycle. And that, and that happens in subsidized culture too, by the way. There mm -hmm. are these, there's the, these composers that pop and then, you know, the Donashingen, Merit's Music, Ultrashall, you know, mm -hmm. Darmstadt, you know, all the, you know, they cycle around for maybe four years and, they, and then they go out. It's really sad, actually, because that was that person's life. You know, <laughs> isn't isn't it weird? But uh, well, maybe um, waiting it out like that doesn't that also cause a certain? Because there's no guarantee. Of course, you know that. Doesn't that stir up a certain amount of fear? It might just be what it is right now, and maybe slowly decline, and people move away to Oberlin, <laughs> and 
it's like that's also a strategy that's not that is also in and itself not a guarantee. So yeah, how do you deal with that mentally? Well, I mean, there aren't any guarantees. I mean, the the thing that I think we try to to use to guarantee our success in our careers is to work as hard as we can on making our art as good as it can be. And so what can determine success? What is a stronger correlate of success than just making something that is, and I sound very arrogant for a second, but undeniably good. And so, you know, not saying that any of us has achieved that, but that's the goal. I think we talk about it in those terms a lot. It's like you want whatever you're doing to be uh, so strong in some way that it just can't be denied. If someone actually listens to it, and you know what? What I like more and more is these festivals in which uh, it's not a single aesthetic, but they put things side by side. Mata, I think, is doing a very good job of this these days. He's very good, actually. Yeah, and so yeah. put it side by side and let people make their decisions. So when when things are presented in that context, you know, we just want it to be heard because we, you know, by and large, are doing everything that we can to make it just the strongest artistic aesthetic statement that it can be. And just believe that if it's heard and listened to with enough um, care or interest, you know, if it's something very unfamiliar, obviously you have to listen to it a little bit in, to, to get to the point where you actually can get the message that's coming across or just make sense of the signal that's coming through. But let's say that happens. Yeah, I think we, we just do have faith that, uh, that people will recognize what in it is of quality. And uh, I think the reason that you know, we're not particularly freaked out about that happening more quickly at the moment is that it's things are moving in the right direction let's say for the past five years in particular and more and more it seems like it's playing out the way that we had hoped okay so uh, this has all been not lofty but like very abstracted so now i'm gonna have to try and bring this down to say you're hoping that people are gonna get the signal describe the signal what is and not even wedding anymore okay you Mm -hmm. what are you going for you know, what are you trying to give people? What is that statement? Mm-hmm. And that's an impossible question to answer in a certain way. And you should, in a certain way, I feel bad for making composers verbalize it, but this is, I think it's important thing. To, yeah. Actually, so. because it's, I think you just have to be thinking about that. Okay. So, uh, well, uh, I, I think I, I go about it from several different angles. If I think about the, the strongest experiences that I've had with art, music, film, novels, whatever it's been, there's this element of maybe like ecstatic experience would be the the simplest way to say it. Something that, you know, take the form of like that kind of 19th century German sublime, the Mahler nature worship, you know, those crazy like pan-diatonic chords that come up in the middle of uh, the Fifth Symphony that's just out of nowhere. Just these sort of um, terror and awe and wonder all together at the same time. Dopamine being released, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, really just like but like, quite literally, probably, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, and I, I really almost in some cases think about it in those terms of just like what's going on inside your skull at that moment. Trying to create kind of peak experiences for people in, in art uh, that those are things that are not extremely accessible to us in our daily lives. Those are things that in some cases maybe were, uh, were taken up previously in our culture, in religious contexts. You know, it's, it's the sort of thing that happens a couple times in your life, but you don't know when it's going to happen. Or, or it's in a situation that's so extreme that you don't want to repeat it again. But there was some aspect of that experience that was so strong that it, it just is with you forever. That's basically what I'm after, I think, in a lot of 
uh, a lot of these pieces recently is just that that particular sensation of what that does to you what that what it is to be in that state which is a kind of imminence of consciousness a kind of just complete unself-conscious unmediated experience of something being present with you uh and it's also just a sim- sort of simple catharsis which, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, I mean, which mm-hmm. is an experience that's very, very strong and very powerful and in, in all kinds of art, you know, high, low, everything in between, popular art, absolutely. Just that experience of um, constructing an emotional arc that just builds tension, tension and release.
Have you found any templates that work well for that goal of yours in your particular style? I want to. I almost want to try and get down to like the nitty gritty of it, mm-hmm. so we can start talking about katachi. What's what? How is it pronounced? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. How did you technically achieve that? And I listened. You know, I listened to the whole thing. There are a couple of moments in that mm-hmm. that I think specific types of juxtapositions of material like mm-hmm. happening one after one another. I'm, I'm thinking this one particular moment where I'm not exactly sure. I, I didn't even know what it was. It sounded like the buzzing from a guitar chord. Yep. And, um, and then it was doubled with a sax, like yep. a really low sax. But like right before it, there was like this polyrhythmic scales going on. And then it goes, and and it mm-hmm. goes bop, 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 and it was all in unison. Mm-hmm. And like 
those particular types of juxtapositions for me personally, I was like, holy shit, that was amazing. Like, and I couldn't even, it took me a while to identify that it was even a saxophone. Uh-huh. Like I thought the whole thing was an electronic patch right. for some reason. Yep. And I'm just wondering if well, it's not even an electronic patch. It's actually literally a speaker cable. <laughs> oh, was a speaker cable. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so how Sam's do you playing it up? like an instrument, just putting okay. his thumb over it and all. Oh, so I was actually right. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, how do you come up with these, what are your sources? Have you, have you found kind of like not an ideology, but way of decoding these things? How do you make something like that? What causes you to go in that mm-hmm. direction? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. this is why for me personally, the idea of like being a composer is actually like a very high thing. And the idea of like working on your craft is such an important thing. And I think it doesn't get a lot of respect in certain circles here. And that, that, that annoys me a little bit. I guess just because for you, me, when you say craft, you mean like the nuances of I knew to do the the speaker and the saxophone. Well, just you know, in the same, just what what art form or what um, what practice doesn't involve craft? I mean, what what chef would like denigrate craft, or what person who's making furniture would like shit all over the idea of knowing what you're doing? I think Guy Fieri in his <laughs> new restaurant. <laughs> Touche. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, but. Uh, you know, teaching composition, this thing comes into very strong relief because uh, when you teach a composition lesson with like kids at Oberlin, it's so funny how you're just always talking about the same two or three things. And like everyone has their their agendas and their their ideas and their artistic aims. But basically what you do is you talk about these almost like handful of weirdly like platonic forms and shapes and ideas that are these kind of uh, trajectories forms uh, emotional arcs energies in music and how to how to marshal them how to construct them how to how to play them out over the course of time and so when i when i think about how to create a certain effect in a piece i I really do think about it in those terms and it's it has to do with form above all i think so it's creating expectation i think there are a lot of styles in which it's actually very difficult for composers to to create expectation because they've eliminated the ability to work with so many different things because you're so dedicated to a process or because they're so dedicated to negating x y and z okay so you're talking about the opposite of what i was yeah 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 yeah. uh and and on the other side too um and that's again that's a little bit of an extreme statement but for me that that issue almost like the 19th century or i mean 18th century idea of like the suspension as a as a harmonic and gestural figure is such an important thing like you have to be able to manage tension and release to get what I'm going for. And other people are going for other things, that's fine. So in a situation like that, it's managing large-scale formal processes and trajectories, um, knowing what the sort of, where you are along a particular process and where you're headed, voice leading, you know, where's the base and where has it been? Like very, very sort of stupid, simple, like chromatic motions in the base over long formal spans but they're not stupid i know what you mean but, no, but, yeah, but yeah, i mean of like course those someone would analyze stupid. it and like put it up on a chalkboard and be like yeah that's retarded but it works and it and you hear it and you feel it and i'm only interested in things from a theoretical standpoint that you perceive and feel and that function in the listening experience uh in that way so in a situation like what you've what you brought up there um it's a dealing with sort of loops or blocks or things like that the kind of rhetoric of that style like in Stravinsky or in Messian or in any of those composers Andreessen that work with um, little blocks of material there's a kind of energy to that abruptness and so you uh, either intuitively or over time you get more familiar with the, that rhetoric and you manage 
that abruptness in various ways. And again, I think that's just basically a game of surprise. So the more discontinuous the material in those blocks, if you're still moving just directly without transition from one to the next, the more sense of energy there is in that transition. So in the moment you just described, it's totally discontinuous energies between the two things. And so the, the, the transition feels especially abrupt, especially surprising. It, it just has this kind of friction. You know, the, the sense in that particular moment in the piece is to... It's a moment of dissonance, of large-scale dissonance. Yeah, that yeah, in that, a global sense, yeah, yes. Right. Yeah. So it's it's um, sort of phrase-level dissonance. So it, it, there's a feeling of tension of things not being resolved, and then the, it, there is a kind of even cadence after that, where everything settles, and then you have this long, prolonged passage of hocket, this very, very fast hocket between the flute, violin, piano, and percussion, in which they're all just playing these um, six notes in fixed registers, which are the spectrum of an almglocken, that the percussionist is playing as part of that figure. Okay, yeah. So it's this weird sort of meta thing. So the percussionist is throwing up this, this sort of holographic pitch image of the, the omglocken just by playing it, but all the other instruments are playing within the pitches that exist in that instrument at the same time. In this, it's almost like a Balinese kind of, it is one line, but it's distributed in this super fast, super um, intricate way between four different people. Yeah, so in a piece like that, it really is, I think, about creating these long lines uh, long, large-scale trajectories of of energy, of tension uh, in the piece, and just managing those. I like the idea of manager, that or like the the idea of you said managing, mm-hmm. and and like I almost I almost picture you having like two or three or however whatever different types of materials of charts, cutting and pasting a little bit or moving things over and like okay so like the end of this section is starting at the beginning of this section or something like that. Like what is your how do you develop a strategy? Yeah, well, um, I mean, over time you try things, you see what works and what doesn't. And so eventually you have a, a set of kind of go-to strategies. But the really yeah, mannerisms the, that are yours. Well, just things that you know work. I, I just taught this class on Messiaen at Oberlin, Messiaen and Ligeti. And uh, I was really, I didn't know this, but really sort of charmed to discover that Messiaen over his life just developed these binders full of chords. Other than binders filled <laughs> exactly, with women. Like yeah, Romney, yeah. Yes. Um, Really, and he just he had like pages and pages and pages and rhythmic things too of like these little talias that he would uh, and he would say, oh, what can I use here? What would be? Uh, I have this many beats. Let me just look through my chart. Oh, this one would work. I mean, it's it's he's sort of creating a global effect anyway. So he just needs something that fits. There it is. It fits. It does the job. So a little bit less general than that, but let's say um, like in the beginning of of that piece, Katachi, There's a. I knew I wanted to have a large scale process going on in the first movement where you have this kind of interjection in the percussion uh, that interrupts these sort of larger descending phrases. And it becomes more and more frequent until it, it is the only thing that's happening. It's happening over and over again every 16th note. But it happens over the course of four minutes. So that's the sort of thing where I would make a plan of those four minutes of time, and I would listen to where I thought the first one should happen, and I would see the space there, and then I would implement a kind of exponential acceleration so I'd plot out, okay, I want to have about this many. Uh, generally, actually, what, what happens is it's always a dialectic between listening and systematizing things. So you know in general what kind of process is going to make it sound right, in this case, a kind of exponential acceleration. But you also know that it's not interesting to listen to an exponential acceleration unless moment to moment it feels like the right thing to happen there. 
So you push things around a beat here or there, whatever it is, um, and it still works. Yeah. Here's the, okay, so here's the, here's the general overview. This is the plan, and my intuition is telling me that this is boring here, so I'm going to move it a sixteenth before. Mm-hmm. It's going to happen a sixteenth before. Yeah, something and, along that. And generally, also the the plan comes second, and the intuition comes comes first. So I almost always start pieces without a plan. Write the first minute or the first couple pages. Step back from it. See what I'm doing. Discover things that I've doing that have some sort of coherence or that I can generalize some idea about just from what I've intuitively come up with and then start to systematize at least a little bit from there. So give myself a sense of, okay, I'm working with this kind of harmony. Let me generate some other harmonies that follow that same principle. Do they sound related? Yes. Okay, that works. I can sort of work based on that. So really always going back and forth uh, between those particular strategies, but remaining always just supremely loyal to, to listening as being the arbiter in the end, I mean, I just don't care about it. If I can't sense the process, eh, it's, it's not I mean, exciting it's a, to me. Yeah, yeah. I think that's an important set of priorities or important order of priorities to have. So you have these go-to things and like getting back to like the messianic binder filled with, uh-huh. you're in your early 30s. Mm-hmm. Is your binder filled? It's starting to get there. Um, is that a good thing? What like? Oh what, yeah, yeah. You ever gonna have a crisis and be like, "Fuck this binder! I want a new empty binder." Oh, I hope yeah. so. Yeah. Um, but for the moment, I mean, I'm sure this is true for for almost anyone. We go through these phases of knowing what we're doing and phases of not knowing what we're doing, and you you have to build up over time some just ideas about what what works for you in your art, just so that you can you can speak in it. You know, you have to have some kind of language some kind of grammar to, to what you do just so that from one piece to the next, you can articulate something that was, you know, maybe successful or, or better or just does what you, what you want it to do. The clearest, the clearest example of that that I can give for myself is um, my approach to harmony, which for the last few years has consisted of basically collecting chords. Yeah. And so these are, you know, chords that basically are found objects uh, and there, I can put them into like three or four different categories. In a lot of cases, they are sort of piano versions of inharmonic spectra, so like a percussion, metallic percussion or omglocken or whatever else that that happened to when they've been sort of flattened out onto an equal tempered framework. Still sound really interesting to me. I don't hear them as being referential to any tonal harmony, and yet they have this integrity as a they retain some relationship. Some sense of unarbitrariness is the word that I always use talking with students about it. Is like you can tell that there's, um, it's not just this made up like interval construct. You know, it's somehow a picture of a sound in the world in enough of a sense that it's just an interesting object. And you get these from analyzing yeah, in a spectra lot of, cases, of uh-huh, yeah, sure. and they'll be like, here are the pitches, and then you'll clunk them out on your, mm-hmm. you know, uh, crappy keyboard because you don't have access to a piano and you're like you know what that's great i can actually put this in the the piece this piece and Mm -hmm. probably the next piece if it calls for it sure yeah yeah i mean i've used every piece that i've written for piano in the past three years has used the exact same preparation of the piano and so that has just become what the piano is to me these days and so i know exactly you know what's how to combine a prepared note with a bunch of other unprepared notes to make an interesting sonority and so I use those as objects. I know what those things sound like when combined with other instruments because I've used them that way. So then that becomes an object, a sort of secondary object. Uh, another category would be woodwind multiphonics as harmonic objects. Tran- you know, again, flattened out to equal temperament. 
either played on the piano or orchestrated as harmonic fields, things that, that are modeled on something natural, something in the world, but without any sense of natural law to it. Like, you know, this is, this is right. This is like the new tonic or something like that. But um, I just, I, I find them interesting. I find them compelling. They're a way of really working with harmony that to me anyway, to my ear, doesn't sound uh, used up, doesn't sound um, really referential to, to a lot of other things for the moment. And, you know, you, you start to push against the wall after a while, but yeah. And so, you know, with, with things like that, then you can contextualize them in different ways, use a certain sonority as part of a harmonic field rather than just as a chord by itself. Working, I've become just totally fascinated with um, difference tone and ring modulation chords. In order to hear the difference tone? Well, not, or, not even. Or I mean, just because that combination sounds cool as an object, even if you don't hear the difference as tone? As a harmony that played on any instrument generates a specific timbre, a reproducible timbre. So, you know, I could write out a chord, I could actually play it on the piano right now, that just by the arrangement of its intervals produces the, the sound of a kind of difference tone buzz. It's a timbre, basically. Yeah. And it's, it's the arrangement of those intervals in register. So, again, you put that, you give that to basically, well, this will be overstating it, but to, to many different kinds of instrumental combinations, and it still produces that same timbre from the harmony. Right? So the harmony generates the timbre. When did you start collecting these things? Well, they, I mean, they all grew out of very direct interactions with performers. So I, maybe the first conscious step was I wrote a piece for uh, Yarn Wire, this piano percussion group, and I just decided that that was the, what the piece was going to be about. I was really into Peter Oblinger's music, still am, so I had the idea of having the piano and percussion be this weird imitative mirror of each other in a way, so that I would find all of these percussion sounds which were um, in between pitched and noise and that I would analyze them in software and pull harmonies from them that I would then juxtapose with the percussion and the piano. And you would hear, because they were juxtaposed directly, you would hear a connection between them. That's actually the perfect concept for a piece in order for you to start in that direction. Yeah. Isn't it? Right, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I, so I had, you know, based on that piece, 20, uh, whatever, 20, I think it was actually about 26, same as the letters in the alphabet, um, sounds or sort of chords to, to start things off that I used in that piece. And it really was just, only that many harmonies. And they, they never change. I never added a note or subtracted a note from them. Um, they're never transposed. Actually, in that case, that's, that is not true. I did transpose them by octave um, in that piece. It's but a good thing you not. just said that because everybody was going to catch that. If oh, you didn't God, correct yourself, been, was going to get a bunch of emails. Yeah, so many emails. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, think it, I think it started with that piece. I was also working a lot with um, uh, saxophonist Elliot Gategno around those, those times and getting into the idea of trying to take hold of multiphonics more directly, of you know, really knowing what pitches were inside of them, um, really treating them not just as, as sound objects but as harmonic objects that could be orchestrated and contextualized and made as part of a field or you know, uh, played against something else in the piano. And you still can't do that with a, the saxophone multiphonic book. That just gives you a bunch of pitches and then a short description of it. You're like, this is no good for me. Yeah, I mean, I gotta give them to somebody, and then some of them sound amazing. Some of them sounds like some of them sound like G major chords, <laughs> which are incredible, and some of them sound like squeaky messes. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think you just have to get your hands dirty. Yeah, yeah. You just yeah. have to be in the room with it. I mean, yeah. one way or the other. Even now, if you have a CD of those sorts of things, you can just play it in headphones and play along with it on the piano and see when things work and when they don't. And that they're getting more and more standardized. I, I hope, or that seems to be my sense, is that more and more people are honing in on you know, the ones that tend to work uh, for most people and um, developing the performance practices developing among players, that those things are becoming more and more reliable. I almost feel bad because this is kind of a trope that gets played in a lot, but how much of 
your way of you just kept on talking about going into software, analyzing, uh-huh. you know, using music notation software. How much of your experience at academic institutions and working with composers who are closely associated with EarCam led you in this direction? Very, very little, I would say. I mean, I'm really bad with computers. My, you know, when I talk about doing something in software, or, I mean, I could barely set up the microphone to like do the recording so that I could then take it home and dump it into some extremely basic uh, program that a friend of mine wrote in order to see a little bit of the, the pitches. Like, it's You're just, just like, damn it, Sam, just give me the pitches of this sound. <laughs> and he's very, like, okay. Low t- yeah. Actually, at one point I did get a friend of mine. It's like, what I would really love if this, if there were just some max patch that could just, uh, you know, I would play a sound into it and it would spit out quarter tone specific notation for for those pitches. But it's actually probably better that I don't have that, even though that, that wouldn't be so hard to make. I, I don't know. I think part of the fun is the negotiation between the technology and your ear and um you know if it's too easy the temptation to do something bad is is so strong because it's easy i i, I like the simplicity of the clunkiness of my process at the moment as far as the other issue of just sort of academic institutions i mean i i never learned to use the earcom software i took a class with tristan murai at columbia that was sort of centered around it but i, I mean i just never it's so complicated and it's so much of it is geared towards doing things that i just care not at all. And if you master it and you believe in it, you're being funneled in a way that you're not even aware of. And then you end up sounding well, like I mean, everybody else who uses that software. Yeah, I mean, the aesthetics in the software. And I, I think that's that's always true. So, again, I, I feel the most kinship with someone like Peter Oblinger, who is extremely ad hoc in his use of technology. And it's really always as a kind of prosthetic ear. That's how he uses it. He wants to be able to hear something more clearly. So he picks up a microphone or he uses something to look inside the sound. He freezes it and then splits it up into a grid and then pulls out the information. Another thing that's very nice about him is that he works always with with friends of his who are extremely technically adept to develop some of these tools. So all of the pieces with the the player piano, the crazy like pneumatic uh, attachment onto the, the piano, those are done in collaboration with Winfried Riesch. And uh, you know he just he always credits those people equally in the creation of those pieces, which is just so foreign to the the earcom model of you know these little French and Spanish and Argentine elves working down in the basement to like realize your shitty ambitions uh, but he's he always knows what he wants from it. We should all get there by trial and error because if you know what's going to happen if you know from the beginning uh you know what the what the result is going to be, and you're you're just um, pulling it out somehow. I, I just don't think that you're never going to discover anything. So I mean, watching him work on some of those voices and piano pieces, where you you just start with the recording of the voice. He doesn't know what the piano part is going to be. He doesn't know what what degree of resolution is going to create the most interesting uh, result, or uh, you know what particular little rhythmic tick is going to suggest a musical motive, and then how to how to tune the software as a result of that to you know, create uh, the the clearest response that he wants for the piece. It's it's a process of discovering it as he goes along. He has a, an approach to technology that I find especially interesting and thoughtful and nuanced, and it produces results that I find convincing. Great. Well, I think somebody's here, so thank you for doing this. You're welcome, Dan. <laughs>